the name of all German youth, we demand that the government return to us our most valuable treasure, our personal freedom. Because Adolf Hitler has cheated us out of our freedom in the most pathetic way. We have grown up under a government that strangles every hint of free expression. They used their contemptible method of worldview education to suffocate independent thought and any feelings of self-worth in a fog of empty words. The words you just heard were printed on a leaflet that Hans and Sophie Scholl distributed at the University of Munich on the morning of February 18, 1943. These words were written by their professor, Kurt Huber. Hans and Sophie were discovered by a university janitor who then called the Gestapo. They were arrested on the spot, brought in for interrogation, and five days later, they were executed. The other members of the White Rose, Kurt Huber, Christoph Probst, Alexander Schmorell, and Willy Graf, would all meet the same fate. I'm Jennifer Rosenfeld, and you're listening to part one of the White Rose podcast. I've spent the last seven years writing a musical about the White Rose. However, my history with the subject matter goes back a lot farther than that. Now I'm at the stage of having just recorded a musical concept album, and I wanted to create this podcast to provide some context, not just on the subject matter and the story. I mean, you can find out lots about that online, and I recommend that you do, but to give you an insight into the materials and information that go much deeper than what you can find on Wikipedia. I've come to appreciate these six individuals and the brave actions that they took for more than just what they did, but also for who they were and the influences that shaped their character. So that's what I hope to reveal to you in this podcast, the stories behind the White Rose that make it such a special moment in history and one that we should appreciate and remember. When I was a college freshman in the fall of 2005, I happened to take a course called Resistance Writings in Nazi Germany, and while I loved the class, I didn't expect the White Rose was going to come back to me. That happened later in 2009 when I was doing research for my senior honors thesis in Russian literature on the novel Dr. Zhivago. That's when I made an unexpected discovery. Dr. Zhivago was written by the 20th century poet and novelist Boris Pasternak, and it just so happens that his family papers reside in the Hoover archives at Stanford University, where I went to school. So as I was doing research for my honors thesis, I happened to come across an essay written by Boris Pasternak's sister, Josephine. Even though in 2009 I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do with it, I knew in that moment that this essay was going to have an impact on my life. Here's how the essay begins. Ten years ago, on July 14, 1943, Kurt Huber, Alexander Schmorell, and Willy Graf were executed by the National Socialist Government in Munich. They were the last three victims of the six involved in the Munich anti-Hitler demonstration led by Hans and Sophie Scholl. Very few people will still remember the incident, and I doubt if, even in Germany, the significance of the Munich action has been fully recognized. It was an essay that she had written in 1953 to commemorate the events of the White Rose. You see, she had known two of the individuals involved. Alexander Schmorell was the son of her family doctor in Munich, 
and Kurt Huber had been her professor. She was shocked by the horrible coincidence that these two men that she knew in completely separate parts of her life would come to know each other and have their lives end in the same tragic way. Another thing that struck me about her essay was the way that she picked up on the common emotional qualities that linked the members of the White Rose, like the fact that they all had some musical training. As I read Josephine's manuscript and the other documents that accompanied it in the file, I was putting the pieces together and I realized something important, that her essay was never published. Along with the essay, there were a series of rejection letters from various publications, all refusing to publish her essay. She tried so hard and felt so compelled to get this information out there to commemorate the 10-year anniversary of their deaths. I didn't know very much about Josephine at the time, but what I did know was that she came from a family of artistic luminaries. Not only was her brother a famous novelist, but her father was one of the great painters in Russia of the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, and her mother was a concert pianist. From childhood into her young adulthood, she was surrounded by great artists, and very likely she had some of that talent and potential as well. I would later come to learn that Josephine's relationship to her desire to be artistically self-expressed was actually a rather complicated matter. It was as if indulging in inspiration was in some ways self-indulgent or even sinful because she felt that it pulled her too far away from real human suffering. And actually, I think knowing this about her is really important for how to understand the way she perceives the members of the White Rose and what they did. In her memoir, Tightrope Walking, which she wrote in the 1960s but was published after her death in the 90s, she describes the inner turmoil she felt as a young girl when it comes to this issue. She writes, I renounce the identification of art and religion. Not really the identification either, but the excuse, I devote my being to beauty, to inspiration, to artistic creativity. For am I not nearest to God in these moments of exaltation? Well, it is an excuse. For while I am transported by beauty, my being is centered in a supreme kind of enjoyment. In fact, it is egocentric. In this divine or godly experience, I forget the others. Every aesthetic transport sweeps me up, away from reality. I do feel nearer to God. I feel uplifted, inspired, and even, may I add, nearer to truth and goodness. But... I am out of the gravitational field of human anxiety, of human interrelated sorrow, and therefore in my joy, having overcome these bonds of sorrow, I have deserted my brothers. She then contrasts herself to her brother Boris, the famous writer whose novel Dr. Zhivago, about which I was writing my honors thesis, gained him international acclaim and also kind of destroyed his life at home in the Soviet Union because it was perceived as a critique of the regime even though it wasn't even published in Russian until about 30 years after his death. She writes, Boris succeeded in abandoning what I have called the gravitational field of human interrelated misery without experiencing a feeling of guilt. But then Boris burnt himself for the sake of art. In the domain of art, he achieved what saints try to attain in their religious dedication. Over the years of her life, Josephine experienced these moments of in some ways changing her mind of wanting to be creative, whether it was through her poetry or other writings or to continue her studies. And in many instances, when that desire came, she also felt like she had missed her chance, that it was too late. So there's this almost tragic dimension to Josephine and the unexpressed potential within her. I wonder if this gave her an added dimension of empathy for the members of the White Rose, who all had tremendous artistic and creative potential, and yet who lost their lives too early. 
So back to the archives. There I was reading her essay while I was supposed to be working on something else. And in a sense, I was I was moved. I felt like it was there just for me. But I also felt kind of heartbroken for her that despite lots of effort, it hadn't reached anyone. So for some reason, I felt like it was on me to correct that and to effectively become her publisher. And because I'm me, I thought I should write a musical about this. I didn't start working on the musical until many years later, but once I did, I dove back into the letters of Hans and Sophie Scholl. I discovered yet another unpublished essay that confirmed my instinct that this story had to be told with music. It was a draft of an essay written by Sophie Scholl in January of 1942. She writes, Music softens the heart by resolving its confusions and relaxing its tensions. Music quietly and gently unlocks the doors of the soul. Now they're open. Now it's receptive. This is the ultimate effect that music has on me that makes it one of my life's necessities. The reward is a liberated heart, an uninhibited heart, a heart that has become receptive to harmony and things harmonious, a heart that has opened its doors to the workings of the mind. Now, there's no way that in 1953, Josephine Pasternak could have read the private writings of Sophie Scholl, but Sophie's words just confirm how correct Josephine's instincts are about the fact that the artistic inclinations of this group meant something for who they were as people. Why did Sophie write this essay? What was it for? We don't know for sure, but it seems that it was likely a draft of an essay she wrote for a literary magazine that she participated in with her siblings and her friends called Windlicht. Now, Windlicht means lantern or hurricane lamp in German. It was a way for them to stay connected with each other by sharing thoughts, essays, poetry, art, really anything else that helped them stay in touch as the war dispersed them around the country and beyond. I loved learning about Windlicht because I see it as a sort of prototype for the White Rose. It was a place for Hans and Sophie to share their ideas in the company of friends through words, art, and other mediums. It was a way for them to discover themselves and their individuality. In the winter of 1941, Hans and Sophie went on a skiing trip with their sister Inga and a handful of their other friends who were involved in the publication of Windlicht. And apparently it was a very impactful and significant trip. Inga wrote about it, and here's what she said. Most of you will know how grand it is to sit around a stove by candlelight with few friends in the solitude that reigns at 2,000 meters with wind-driven snow lashing the four walls outside and nothing visible to the eye but a grayish, yellow, swirling, drifting mass. It's a good thing that the purity and peace prevailing at such an altitude entails a certain amount of trouble and exertion not only because those incapable of appreciating and making the most of it would fill the silence with noise, but on our own account too, because the communal exertion and discomfort of such a climb and its occasional difficulty create a special bond between us. So Inga is describing this sort of arduous trek that they all took hiking up this snowy mountain where they're going to spend some time, I guess, in a cabin and how that process together creates this form of bonding that is so special. The next bit that I'll read for you, it's a little bit heady, but it's worth it to hear what she has to say about 
how they find individuality in the midst of this group experience. The us that can be engendered by an outward experience of this kind forms a perfect basis for another inwardly and invisibly constituted us to which we aspire and on whose account the Windlicht, or lantern, has been lighted. It isn't that we want to sacrifice our I to this us, but rather that we seek the us for the sake of the I, so that it may derive sustenance for its continued development and contemplate its reflection in this us as though in a mirror. That statement she made about the I and the us really speaks to how they have curated a collective experience as a way to refine and develop their individuality. I think that's really special and certainly contrary to the prevailing ideas of that time. She then describes the sorts of conversations this group would have together. They're engaging around matters of sort of the meaning of existence and the sort of spiritual quest for understanding, why am I even here? She writes, One of us brought the conversation around to hunger. It was, he said, a great mystery that so many people should feel no hunger for the things of the spirit. Don't they ever wake up with a start and ask, why? Where does it come from, this restlessness within me, this mild ache? Ah, but they always know of an instant remedy. They bury the little voice inside them beneath a heap of stuff instead of simply standing still and asking, why? If they would only once start with that why, it might be the beginning of hunger, but they seem to be asleep. Indeed, they seem to have entirely forgotten how meaningless life can really be. This sentiment is very much echoed in Josephine's writings when she talks about how the accelerated pace of life, thanks to technology and other innovations, gives people a way to distract themselves from the bigger questions of meaning and what it means to engage with humanity. And it's funny because, of course, she wrote this in 1953. Josephine writes, The world of today is dominated by the notion of speed. From the ever-increasing velocity of means of locomotion and communication to the exaggerated rendering of a Chopin study, it is the same precipitate hurry. This incessant urge of overtaking is a symptom of moral disease. It is as if mankind feared to halt for a moment, lest it should find itself confronted with emptiness. This is one of the amazing connections between Josephine and the White Rose, this sort of spiritual quest to find meaning and connection to the beyond. So Inga continues to talk about the conversation that they had and whether that spiritual hunger can be satisfied through various art forms and human creations. What form did spiritual hunger take when there was so much that derived from man himself? For instance, the wide realm of art and literature, which was certainly capable of assuaging spiritual hunger as well. Or music. Isn't that food for the soul? Clearly, this topic of conversation was one that stuck with Sophie beyond the ski trip. Not only did she write a draft of an essay about music, she also expressed some of these thoughts privately to Inga in a letter. Last night I heard some music on the radio, so strong and lucid and filled with joie de vivre, could have been by Bach. I've thought a great deal about music, which is so essentially immaterial. Painting and sculpture require images. And I've also imagined music among the angels. But it's intended solely for human beings, for their senses. And it's wonderful that an assortment of vibrations can conjure up such beauty and arouse such emotions. I found it easier to grasp how highly God values us. 
While there is more in Sophie's letters and diaries about music than for the other members of the White Rose, she wasn't the only one who felt that connection to the arts and to music in particular. In many of Hans's letters, he talks about the concerts that he went to and how important they are for him. Same with Alexander Schmorell, who actually wanted to pursue a career as a sculptor. And Kurt Huber, their professor, in addition to being a professor of philosophy, earlier on his career, he was one of the noted scholars of German musical folklore. One of the anecdotes I find most interesting about Kurt Huber is the fact that he was actually close friends with the composer Karl Orff, who wrote the famous piece Carmina Burana. Apparently, Kurt Huber was the one who suggested the medieval texts that are the basis of that piece. One final thing I want to say about Windlicht is that I love the symbolism of it. This lantern or hurricane lamp where you can picture this flame that is protected from the harsh elements by an enclosure of metal and glass. Whenever I think about Windlicht and the imagery of it, it also reminds me of a line that I read in one of Hans's letters where he says, Shadows exist for the sake of light, but light takes precedence. And really how the entire story of the White Rose is one of this conflict or contrast between light and extreme darkness. And that's one of the things that I find so fascinating about it. I hope all of this gives you just a little taste of the many layers of meaning, references, and symbolism that underlie the members of the White Rose and the story of what they did together. Over the next few episodes, we're going to go deeper as I have conversations with people who've played an important role on my journey, and I hope to introduce you to even more interesting revelations. Thank you.